American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. I want to try to make room this morning to get your feedback on my work and on what you've learned so far. I think one of the things we have in common um, is that a lot of you have come to to the Civil War and to Civil War art from other places. Um, and, and I'm certainly that way. I'm an early American historian, I'm, so I'm in a century that I don't know very well and, and in a discipline like art history that I don't know very well, so I'm a little intimidated by some of the work that all of you are doing. The, my ace in the hole is the fact that I'm about two or three times older than all of you. <laughs> and, and so one of the things I want to do this morning is put a little historical perspective on, particularly on this picture, you know, because as you can tell, I'm kind of obsessed with this picture. I never thought when I wrote the last line to that book, like you should go visit her in Newark. Um, I never, I I figured a few people would, but I never thought I'd get to be part of a group that was going to go see her, you know. You won't be disappointed. It's very small, very simple, um, but it's, one of the great paintings in American art. Um, and so, so that's, so I wanna, I wanna talk some background this morning about Homer, lead up to Andersonville, then either before or after the break, get some of your feedback on the, on the picture itself and any other ideas you have. And then maybe after the break, if we have time, Um, I brought along some pictures of, some of Homer's pictures from Reconstruction that that many of you are already familiar with, but, and some of, I mean, I realize there are two or three of you who are experts on education during Reconstruction, and and Homer managed to create some amazing pictures about exactly that theme, so we could have some good conversation about, about those. Homer, he was born in 1836. He dies in 1910. He's born in Boston. He goes to work for Harper's Weekly in New York in the late 1850s. In this, and I think you've already been talking about the the rise of these illustrated weeklies, and they are looking for good young artists. And this is probably the best one in the country. They grabbed him as he would be a prime recruit. Um, and so he, he goes to, he's at Harper's when the war breaks out. He's an illustrator for them, but he's also trying to learn to become an oil painter. His mother was a watercolor painter. He's interested in art. Um, and you know the kid has talent because this is the first painting he ever made. And it's still at least that he made in New York when he was taking night classes in art, and of course it becomes one of the icons of the of the Civil War. Um, he goes on, of course, to a very long, distinguished career. So he's a favorite of uh, not only of of art scholars and museum goers, but a very broad public because he paints very accessible. Uh, paintings often about childhood, often about uh, schoolyard situations, about rural scenes. Um, he paints lots of women, 
small girls, uh, young women, older women, in all different kinds of settings and, and in very um, respectful <coughs> ways, more than many male artists were doing. He never paints nudes, he doesn't get into body studies, but, but he's, some of his pictures of women are often used on the illustrations of, of book covers and so on. He, um, late in his life, he spends a lot of time in the Florida Keys and in the Caribbean. Um, I was in Homosassa Springs uh, a few months ago and actually saw the little playroom looked kind of like this where he had stayed and gone fishing and signed the guest book. Um, and so he's, these are, you know, if you know any people who are hunters or fishermen, they often have uh, Homer pictures on their walls. And of course, he's America's greatest sea painter. Uh, he spent the last decades of his life, he was a bachelor, never married, lived at Prout's Neck in, on the coast of Maine, um, and, and was, was best known for the century after his death, really, as a painter of the sea in all its moods and, in, and, uh, and also the people who worked on the sea. And this is the Homer that I knew when I was in college. Now, I, now I'm playing my whole card, right? I mean, I was in college in the early 1960s, 50 years ago. Uh, I had this picture taped up on my wall. I, I was a humanities, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be history or English or art or, and I was just, I was interested in all these things and this, my parents were from New England and if you were in a middle class American family, often in the mid 20th century, you would have, you might have a couple of reproductions of Homer and you might have a couple of reproductions of Van Gogh. You know, that showed that you'd been to a museum in your life and you, could, you knew the difference between Homer and Van Gogh and you were getting somewhere. You know? um, that was Winslow Homer. But that was also the period of the centennial of the Civil War. <clears throat> it was a lily-white centennial. Um, and this picture, which Homer completed in 1866, and which rocketed him to fame, um, really launched his career in many ways. This became the icon of the centennial. This is the Civil War as it was taught to us. It's on the battlefield. There is no home front. You don't see any women. You don't see any blacks. This, this soldier right back here might be black, but if he is, it's just a tiny little hint suggestion. Um, so it's all male, all white, and it's Johnny Reb and Billy Yank facing off against each other, right? That, and you can root for either one you want, you know? but that's what it's all about, and that's what you need to remember about the Civil War, was that these were tough young guys, and they all did what they had to do, and now it's 100 years later, and we don't know what the heck it was all about. Uh, in retrospect, it, it looked amazingly silly. At the, but at the time, this was the centerpiece. And in fact, if you've ever seen the film Gettysburg, which was made in the 1980s, I think, they actually, I've never seen the film, but I'm told they actually reconstructed this scene at one point just because they knew people, you know, if they saw officers standing like that, they would know, oh, this is the Civil War. This, this is 
the real stuff. It's an amazing painting. It's in the Metropolitan Museum. But he also painted African Americans. And art scholars in the 1960s had no clue about that. Uh, I mean, they knew these pictures existed, but they didn't know what to make of them. And so they would write strange things about, sort of evasive things about, about them, uh, talking about the use of paint and the brush strokes and anything not to address. And, and to me, it was an emblem not of two things, the, the naivete of the culture, the invisible man, invisible woman kind of theme that was still very prominent, but also the separation of, of disciplines, you know, that the art historians knew very little reconstruction history and, and vice versa. The historians knew very little art, so there wasn't much communication going on. There wasn't anything to be said. They did know these pictures. As I said, he, later in his career, he went to the Caribbean and did wonderful watercolors of, uh, of blacks in the Caribbean. I'll just show you a couple. These are the kinds of things that you could see hanging in somebody's dining room as a reproduction, right? I mean, there are black figures in them, but it, it's more a recollection of your trip to the Bahamas than it is a, 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 a prompt to think more deeply about black history. But then, in 1899, he, his last and greatest African-American image is this one. And in which I think some of most of you are familiar with one way or another. I find that even people who don't know that it's called the Gulf Stream, if I say, oh, it's the black guy with the shark swimming, and they say, oh, yeah, that's a weird picture. You know, I mean, it's, it go, this goes very deep into the American psyche, this picture. And it had always intrigued me. <laughs> Um, because I was, as Josh said, I had my interests as a young historian in the 60s, like so many of my colleagues, were into this new emerging field of black history. It was exciting, it was open, it was, a, it was, an, it was an edible delight because your elders didn't know beans about it and you could <laughs> show them how little they had known. Um, and so in 1981, I wrote a paper at a conference in South Carolina. I, I gave a paper on this picture. And I'm saying that, you know, this is more than just Winslow Homer and the sea. You've got to look at this black guy and th you've got to know a little black history to know about what's going on here. And I talked about the black history that was going on in 1898, 1899, the Spanish-American War, the rise of the Klan, all kinds of things. And I, but I also talked about the deep background. That, I mean, you don't put a black man on a boat in the Gulf Stream without thinking about the Middle Passage and, you know, and sharks swimming around the ship. I mean, this is, so this, this went deep into African-American history in ways that the art historians really hadn't played with much. The Met had had it hanging there for decades and hadn't um, it was just an enigma, and they would talk about the, the brush strokes and so on. I'm proud to say that a couple of years ago, a little screed of a book came out called The Rape of the Masters by the art reviewer for the National Review, and he took six great paintings in Western art and showed how modern scholars have messed them up. 
and you know he was hostile to postmodernist jargon and so a lot of stuff that he said I kind of agreed with but he did a whole chapter he did a whole chapter about the Gulf Stream and he said it really if you trace it back there's this guy named Wood kept <laughs> calling him Wood there's this Dr. Wood at Duke and he's not even an art historian and he he wrote this little article in 1981 that said you have to pay attention to black history and isn't that stupid you know and then he goes he go, and, and it was downhill from there you know then some of these other susceptible scholars picked up on it and they start you know and now they've ruined the field they've ruined this picture this was a picture that we sailors used to have in our studies you know this was about hardship in the sea and blah 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 anyway I'm very proud of his hostility <laughs> because mo because in fact he's right I mean that most of the Homer community has em gradually embraced this idea so that by the 80s 90s the things that that uh, Karen Dalton and I wrote about in in 1988 as Josh said we did a a whole exhibit and a book on his Civil War and Reconstruction black images and let me just tell you about this one picture, which you're probably not familiar with. It's typical of some of his reconstruction images called Weaning the Calf. And we went into great detail in the book as to how this is in the North Carolina Museum where I used, I used to live in North Carolina. And, and so this, we asked if we could use this picture. It has a black figure in the foreground, right? But he's in the shade and he's got his back turned to you and he's pulling on a calf, he's connected to this calf. The calf's mother is being taken off in the distance. They're being removed from this corral, which I would say is slavery, but she's going in one direction and the calf is going in another. And it's this, it's this very generalized reconstruction question about what happens to the next generation. Is this kid gonna make it on his own? Get out of the shadow, into the Sunshine. Is this calf going to grow up to be a a bull, you know, or and and is this boy going to become a man? And what you have right next to him are two little white boys in their hats, just like their daddies, and they're just watching. They're not helping. They're just watching. You know, like, eh, I don't know if he's going to make it or not. You know, dumb kid. You know, he tied the rope wrong. Whatever. You know, they're. They're just what, and he captures a moment of reconstruction here. The punchline is, so we wrote that, we were very proud of it. We can argue about, uh, I hope I can convince you by the end of the morning that, that this is not just a bucolic picture of, of a farm scene. It's a lot more than that in 1875. And so we felt good about that. As I say, it was accepted by the art community. On Homer died in the fall of, of 1910. So in the fall of 2010, on the anniversary, 100th anniversary of his death, I, I said to my wife, come on, let's just go over to the North Carolina Art Museum and pay our respects to Mr. Homer. Thinking, you know, so we go to this picture, and the wall copy now in 2010 said, uh, this is a very nice bucolic farm scene painted by a wonderful artist from New England named Winslow Homer, period. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Darn, you know, so it doesn't, you know, it takes a while. It takes a while, and they and they had regressed. You know, they'd cleaned it up, and and that's a that's an issue for us because we're in a we're in a moment of regression. Now, 
let me just show some of these images are in lesser form are in are in the book, but let me talk a little bit. Uh, as I said in the in the book, one of the things that's changed <coughs> is we have a whole rich scholarship now on antebellum life, particularly on race relations in Boston, where Homer is growing up. You know, we really for the I mean, so folks 50 years ago were dealing with an incomplete deck, you know. I mean, they had nothing to draw on. Now we have a lot, you know. So we know that when when Homer was, he was an apprentice lithographer before he went to, to Harper's. Um, mostly he was just doing sheet music, being told what to draw a picture. He hated it. He called it his slavery. But he did in 1856, he did, this is one of his, his first and probably the most political drawing that he ever did, the most overtly political. He's a young man, he's 20 years old, and you know the story of the, of the caning of, of Sumner in the US Senate. I mean, we think Congress is dysfunctional now. It was, <laughs> they, were in, they were in bad shape. And, but what he does, this is the part I think that's in the book, but look over here, these are all, this is, this is um, Stephen Douglas with his hands in his pockets, not stopping it, right? And so Homer, already at the age of 20, knows that you can take a complicated political scene and just by representing one person in one certain way, you can, you can say an awful lot, you know, and you can, so he's commenting not just on on Sumner and the South Carolinians who come in to beat him over the head with a cane, but also on all the um, <coughs> the people in who who are uh, sitting on their hands in the middle of these spineless congressmen. So he's so he has an awareness of the of the black issue. You know, I think I I told the story in the book of when this Newark painting. Is found they they uh, they take it to this great Homer expert and he says oh Homer wasn't he wasn't interested in abolition in the Civil War at all you know so so let's call it at the cabin door you know let's just give it this non-political title instead of captured liberators which was the good first guess that that seemed it seemed to be part of it so we know that he had this New England background. I'm not saying that he's a born abolitionist. He's just, he's aware of it. It's, he's, and, and I think I relate to this somehow as someone grow, living through the 60s and being very influenced by the civil rights movement, but not, I can't say I was there, I did this, I did that. It's going on around me, above me. I'm aware of it. I'm watching other people's reactions to it. And I think in the 40s, 1840s and 50s, what's sometimes referred to as the first civil rights movement, there is this serious struggle going on and there are people, there are main players and there are people involved, but there's everybody else is watching, listening, and especially if you're young and sensitive and living in New England, you know, you're, you're picking up a certain set of signals. But he's also a great artist. So by the time he's at, at uh, Harper's, when when it comes when Lincoln gets elected, he's the guy they turn to. They hand him Matthew Brady's photograph from from the Cooper Union speech and say, "Here, you know, put this guy on the cover." So it's it's as though you were the photographer for Time Magazine who had to go 
take the picture of Mitt Romney or whoever the new president is, you know, that's going to go on the cover of the of the magazine. But but he had to draw it very carefully. He he. But the point is, he knows this. He's in this world in the way that a that a news photographer would be today. You know, he goes back to Boston on the first anniversary of of John Brown's hanging. There's a big meeting in Tremont Temple and. Frederick Douglass is the main speaker. This is, this is uh, two weeks after Lincoln's election. And Douglass basically says, if they want war, bring on the war. You know, we're ready to fight, let's fight. You know, if it's time, if we have to fight to end slavery, we'll fight to end slavery. The moderates in Boston, this is the version of, of Douglass with his hands in his pockets. The, the rich cotton brokers in Boston who, who depend on Southern cotton and who are, are desperate to not go to war, not break ties with the South, mobilize the constabulary. They come in with their stars on their lapels and drag him off the stage. And what's in, but what's interesting about this in terms of Homer, and is that it's a, he's already discovered this notion, which lots of news photographers have, I think, and artists too. But he he has it. Accentuate. I call it the Rorschach test. You know, he's very good at creating a very balanced picture that just says, "Look at this." You know, I'm I'm not going to tell you who I'm, who I'm rooting for. You root. You know, if you think Douglas is out of line here and ought to be dragged off stage, you could say, "Yeah, thank God they're yanking him off the stage." You know, or the other way around. If you think, "Wait a minute, that's you know, let the man speak." You know, you could. He he's. He's very uh, subtle in the way that he presents uh, very complicated current issues. This is in, he, he then, as secession proceeds, you know, during, even before Lincoln's election, the, one week after another, a, a southern state will secede. And what it means, it's hard for us to grasp this, it means that these famous Senators, you know, including Jefferson Davis, this is the whole Mississippi delegation, they're pulling out of Washington. And what they do is they hand photographs again to Homer and say, here, make a group portrait of these people. You know, so he, and you don't draw a careful image of, of Jefferson Davis without thinking a little bit about the man. And but you also, it's a very <coughs> neutralized portrait copied from a daguerreotype. But then, of course, he launches into the war. And this, this is not a Homer image by him or of him. It's just a cartoon that appeared in Vanity Fair in 1861 about this issue of whether these clever young artists are actually going to go to the front or whether they're going to sit home in their studios with toy soldiers and just make up interesting drawings. I mean, this was, it's the same issue we had in the Iraq War of, you know, who, is it going to, who's going to cover it and, and how are they going to be allowed to cover it? Homer is embedded, if you will, with McClellan's Army of the Potomac. You know, he, Mr. Harper himself gives him a letter to McClellan saying, you know, treat my, treat my guy well, you know, and sends him off to Washington, D.C. to join in the, the early campaign. And over the course of the war, he goes to the front two or three times. It has a big influence on him, I think, as I, as I say in the book. But, right, but one of the things that happens, not just for Homer, but for all these northern 
white boys, thousands of them, coming in from the farms of Vermont and Michigan who are being sent south, is they're having their first interaction, exposure to African Americans. They may have seen some black farmers and workers in the north, but, but black southern culture is new to them. And of course, the first exposure is what's known as contraband. You know, these Virginia slaves who, who escaped to Fortress Monroe um, as soon as the, the war begins and who are defined as the contraband of war. You know, in other words, by legal theory, uh, you can, if you're at war with an enemy, you can seize their ships or their gunpowder or any of their property. And if they're calling slaves property, then you can seize their slaves. And so Homer, this was actually a sketch for a Harper's illustration about songs of the war. One of the songs he was illustrating was Dixie. But look at the way he does it. Black man sitting on a keg, but the keg is labeled contraband. So that could just be telling you, okay, this guy is contraband, he's an escaped slave. But there's a suggestion that this is a powder keg, right? And that this and that this guy's sitting on a powder keg, he is a powder keg, you know, the, the contraband issue, the issue of enslaved blacks close to union lines, this is explosive. You know, what's gonna happen, you know, what's gonna happen if all these people um, it's going to depend on their world. Is, and I want, I want to put in a plug here for a new book. I can't even remember the guy's name now, but this is the best Civil War book I've read in 10 years. I, I haven't, but I haven't read them all. But this, <laughs> but this is really cool. And you can see why, you'll see why I like this. I think his name is Bresser, or it begins with a B. And, and the book is called The Peninsula Campaign and the Need for Emancipation, or words to that effect. And he goes back and studies the Peninsula Campaign of 1862, where McClellan is taking on Lee, from the perspective of the blacks caught in the middle. And he says, and, and we have very few Civil War books like this, and you can see why I, why I like this. And he says, if, and this guy, it's great. He's a white guy from Georgia or Alabama or somewhere. And when he was in college, he saw um, he saw the he saw glory. He said it blew my mind. He said I realized I've been rooting for the wrong team my whole life. <laughs> and, I mean, and he let me exaggerates it probably, but he 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 was of that generation of young white Southerners who were shifting gears, and he shifted, and he went and got a job with the Park Service in Virginia, working at every fort on the peninsula. So he knew the military side of it. Then he writes this book from the black perspective saying, there are thousands of African Americans living on the peninsula, and think about this. Their grandparents were living on that peninsula during the Yorktown campaign with Washington and, and, and Cornwallis. And they were trying to decide, there's a war going on between two bunches of white folks. Which side am I gonna be on? Which side, you know, and as you probably know, it split 50-50. You know, I mean, some people tried to go with the British thinking that may work. Some people tried to go with the Patriots thinking that might work. Didn't work for any of them, and they had slavery for another three generations. But he's, And then the War of 1812, it's the same thing. They've got a war in Virginia. So he's saying, 
and he describes how these people, I'll show you some pictures, but he describes how these people were fighting for the Confederacy, some of them. I mean, they were under duress, but they were, but he makes a, he says at the beginning, he says, don't freak out, but I'm going to tell you that some of these people were working for the Confederacy. And because he's not a, it's not the neo-Confederate nonsense argument, it's that these people are weighing their choices. And they're saying, you know, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but if I'm loyal to my master and if he wins, he might give me my freedom. Or, you know, and, and I know how to dig earthward. One of the things I learned was these honorable rebels, white boys who signed on, would do anything but dig ditches. You know, wait a minute, I came here to fight. I don't dig trenches. That's what the Negroes do, right? And so, so uh, the, the Southern command is having a terrible time building fortifications, except for the fact that these, the enslaved population living there, and we'll come to a wonderful picture of this, is obliged to build these really good fortifications. And one of the, you know, we usually talk about the Peninsula Campaign in terms of McClellan is a screw-up, and that's valid. Um, but, you, but he says, think about this, you know, McClellan can't believe the fortifications he's running up against. You know, and he, how did they do this? And the white Yankees are saying, they did it with those black workers. We need some of those black workers. So when these contraband come into the Union camps, they're saying, great, now we won't have to dig ditches. They can dig ditches. You know, they're not saying, oh, great, we've liberated the slaves. They're saying, you know, anyway, fascinating book. Um, so we're at the beginning of the war. Homer's in D.C. One of the things you do is go to Mount Vernon, right? And uh, this is another illustrator, draws a picture of these Union soldiers paying homage to Washington's grave at Mount Vernon. And Eastman Johnson, you saw this picture in the, in the book, um, this this fascinating sibling rivalry with Eastman Johnson. You know, this guy who's about a decade older than him, from New England, he's from Lovell, Maine. He's a, he's a very good painter. He's also attentive to black issues. And they almost have a, I mean, I call it a sibling rivalry. You know, it's, it's it, Johnson will paint one thing and Homer will say, okay, here's my version on that. Here's my take on that. So. He's done this in 1857 when it was, there's also a wonderful new book on, on slaves at Mount Vernon in the 19th century. You know, we think of, we usually carry it up to Washington's death and then like, who knows what happened. There were still, there were slaves living at Mount Vernon when, and so, so the, the guy in the foreground there is, a, is a, a slave, a descendant of the slaves who worked for Washington. But this is what Homer does with it. Just a little watercolor sketch, but it's exactly the same perspective. It's looking from the north side of the house towards the big house, but now there are no leaves on the trees. It's real. He's emphasizing the decay, the broken windows. And as you know, this was, you know, Mount Vernon was the metaphor for, for the Union. You know, if we can't, uh, Edward Everett, who gave the famous long speech at Gettysburg before Lincoln, you know, was he'd spent the last three years going around the country trying to raise money to save Mount Vernon on the grounds that if we can't save Mount Vernon, we can't save the Union. You know, if we, this, is, this is the house, you know, the, and, and if it's in disrepair, it's just a big metaphor for what disrepair our house is in. So Mount Vernon as metaphor was, was big at the time, 
And look what he does, emerging out of this root cellar down here, sort of underneath the house is a, is a black family heading north, if you will. You know, and he, it's just a little, it's just a little hint. You know, it's just a few contraband in Virginia. You know, but it's just, it's a different take on a national symbol. He also does this one, which is, you know, uh, Harper's developed this long before Hugh Hefner. They developed a centerfold, <laughs> but it was, but instead of just being soft porn, it was politics, and it gave. It was the center of the magazine, two pages, and it gave you, an artist, a chance to really do your stuff. You know, make a bigger picture that was more complicated, sometimes a series of pictures all on one page, really communicate with your viewers. So here's Homer embedded with the Army of the Potomac. These contraband are coming in. They're, here's an old black guy playing the fiddle over here. Here's a black guy dancing. He's sort of doing an Irish jig. I mean, you can tell that Homer himself is still trying to sort of figure out black color. You know, he, he gets the hair right, but he does. It's it's not quite what he needs. But but what what he emphasizes is the different reactions of all these Yankees standing around. Some are bored. Some are fascinated. Some are confused. And right down, I think I talk about this down in the, in the book, you can't see it very well. Right there, these two guys playing cards, this is vintage Homer. There's a little piece of paper between them, and it just says three letters, I-O-U. So it's a little chit about their gambling game, but it's also this much bigger story of the whole picture about who, oh, there's some big debts coming due right now, you know, for the nation as a whole, and it's just not at all clear in 1861 how those debts are going to be settled, uh, who's going to pay whom for, for what. This is a picture I threw in because I want one of you to figure out what this is all about. This is a picture that we tried to include in our exhibit in 1988. It belongs to the Mellons. And we were told, no, we can't use it because we th the art experts have told us it's a fake. And we don't, you know, we so it would make us look bad, we're not going to use it. It may be a fake, it's signed Homer, and it's a, but, I, but it may also be real. It may also be Homer seeing shackled slaves in D.C. for the first time. And he's, he's trying to understand slavery, he's trying to understand how to paint black bodies, it's, it's not, bodies in general, I mean it's not, it's not uh, the it's not the greatest figure study you've ever seen, but it could very well be a, a young artist seeing something very vivid that makes a not lasting painting, but that makes a lasting impression in his mind. We don't know, but I don't even know where it is now. Nobody's ever tracked it down in the Mellon, vast holdings of the Mellon family. This is another one of those centerfolds called Payday. I think I, I talked about this in, in the book. You get a, a set, he's, he's, it's the relation. Obviously, these magazines are connecting the, the war front to the home front. This is the sutler, the guy who travels with the troops and, send, and uh, sells them chewing tobacco and biscuits. And after they've been paid, they send some of the money home to the family, but they spend some of the money here. But 
you now know the the punchline to this. I mean, basically, that picture emerges three months after Antietam and after these famous Gardner photographs of Lincoln squaring off against McClellan. And I, I'll put in a plug for another a book I haven't read yet. There's a new book by Richard Slotkin that's just come out called The Long Road to Antietam that deals with the shift in the war. You know, we learned as a cliche way back that the war shifts from a war about saving the Union to a war about ending slavery and that. But how that comes about, when it comes about. And Slotkin is arguing that in this period, in the fall of 62, when he's finally hot firing McClellan, and, and of course the historians have always said, and it's perfectly justifiable that he, Lincoln said it, that he had the slows. You know, McClellan, after Antietam, he refuses to pursue Lee. But why did he have the slows? You know, why was he so unwilling to prosecute the war? He, he'd gone to West Point with all these Southern officers. He's fighting against his own teammates. You know, he doesn't, this is not, he doesn't want to engage fully in this war. He's got political ambitions and he's anti-black. You know, he has, he, he says, he writes a letter to, to Washington saying, keep the niggers out of this. You know, don't even, that's not even an issue in this struggle. You know, he's, he, I think he's much worse on this issue than any of the historians have really let on, you know, because the whole white North is worse on this issue than we've understood. Anyway, you know this famous picture of them facing off, Lincoln fires him five days later. Now look at the center of payday. There he is, there's McClellan. And, and, and it, so the, this is a good example of how art historians wouldn't see this in a hundred years. I mean, they literally didn't see it for a hundred years, you know. But but any any purchaser of Harper's Weekly in 1863 would have seen right off. Oh yeah, okay. You know, it's the way we would get a political cartoon right off. You know, oh, I recognize John Boehner. You know, boom, boom. You'd, you'd see what you're looking at. There's McClellan. And the sutler is Lincoln. Got the tall hat, the beard. I mean, there's no getting around it. And look what's right in between them. Right at the very center of the picture, the crease, the crease of the centerfold actually goes right down between his eyes. I mean, right at the middle of the picture, in the front, is this rather stereotyped little black guy with his hand around a bunch of biscuits. I mean, he's he's already somehow the sutler whose hand is pointing. The sutler has given him something even before these soldiers have been waited on. They're trying to get their dried fish and chewing tobacco, and this guy has gotten something big. What's he gotten? He's gotten the Emancipation Proclamation three weeks earlier, right? I mean, this has just happened. So a reader at the time would have understood this, and again, this is, a, this is Homer's Rorschach. He's saying, you know, you get it. You know who McClellan is. You know that you know this emancipation decision we're all talking about. What do you think about it? Do you think these African Americans have been given too much too soon, or or too little too late? You know, what what's your take on this guy's central position here? Uh, so he and it's neat the way you know artistically. I mean, look at the way he creates this sort of circle here. 
he's got the hand pointing to him. There's, he's, he's learning how to play this game. One of the ways he learns is to um, react to other, what other artists are doing and to news stories that are filtering through. And one of the stories that comes up in the Peninsula campaign is these union guys looking through their, their spy glasses and their binoculars and seeing blacks at work on Confederate fortifications and realizing that they're under duress. This was portrayed, it's not by Homer, but it was portrayed as sort of an illustration of, of what I saw when I looked through my telescope. I saw them forcing a black guy to fire a cannon at us. Now, how rhetorical that was or how real it was, but there's no question that they were seeing these black workers on the enemy fortifications. And it's a kind of stereotyped, scared black guy who's kind of caught in the, in the middle. Look at what Homer does with it. This is, this is six or eight months later, and your focus is on this figure right here. You know, if you don't get if you don't get it, he's got these bayonets coming out from behind his eyes. You know, like whoa, OMG! You know this guy. And and what's he what's he uh, what's he upset about? He sees his eyes see these two little white spots over here, which are federal cannons firing on this Confederate place. This is a a Confederate officer with his sword drawn, forcing these people under fire to build the fortifications. They're being bought. So, so the army that's coming to save them is going to destroy them, right? So he's realizing those guys are my liberation, but they may kill me before they get here, right? So it's this. So he's taking you. He's doing something that a northern photographer couldn't have done. He's going behind enemy lines, putting and but he's not only doing that. He's putting you inside the head, not of the Confederate officer, but of this. Uh, black guy. And he's doing it two weeks after the Emancipation Proclamation. So not only is this the real thing of what was going on during the Peninsula Campaign, this is a huge metaphor. This is, you know, Lincoln has just lobbed a huge shell called the Emancipation Proclamation behind enemy lines. If you know the Emancipation Proclamation, it actually, it's only aimed at at people who are in <coughs> Confederate-held territory, so it doesn't really free them. It just says they're free, you know. But but it's this bombshell, uh, and and he's playing with that. He plays again with this, and I'll I'll be quick because I think I wrote about this in the book. But here again, you see two shots in the distance. They're they're being fired by Union snipers outside Petersburg. Uh, your, the initial attention of a picture like this is above ground, you know, just looking at this brave rebel, kind of crazy brave, who's been sitting in, stuck in these trenches for a month. He, he can't resist. He's getting up on the barricades and taunting the Yankees. Um, and he may be helped by this sort of stereotypic black banjo player here who's a little bit like Deliverance, you know, he's just kind of, he may be he may be egging him on, you know, like you go, man, you know, go. Uh, because he may be almost dead. I mean, the shots have been fired. This may be his last moment. Homer plays a lot with this idea of photography and of capturing the 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 instant. But as you 
no, these, um, Grant's army has this Pennsylvania unit of coal miners who dig under the lines at Petersburg to try to break this stalemate, fill this hole full of gunpowder. This is what you see if you go to Petersburg today and blow it up and create this huge crater in uh, late July of 64. If you saw Cold Mountain, it begins with the crater. If you read the novel, it doesn't begin with the crater. It begins with Fredericksburg. But Hollywood thought, man, we can get a big explosion out of this. So they, what they didn't calculate on was that the, so they create this big explosion. They were filming it in Romania so they could get cheap actors. And so the crater is all about black history. I mean, hundreds of African-American soldiers are killed in the crater. And it becomes a complicated national issue. Hollywood flew a couple of dozen black guys over to, to stand around the edge of the crater and be, you know, so it, they're in there, but they're not, they miss, missed the point of the crater. The crater became this huge um, disaster. And, and Homer, Homer's audience would have been attentive to this. All these lines, that bayonet, these bayonets, that banjo, this stick, this law, they all point right down here. In other words, if you saw this in 1864, titled Near Peters Before Petersburg, you'd think, oh my God, the crater, you know, it's about to blow up. You know, this you you know. So he and Homer does this again and again. He plays on what you already know. I was thinking yesterday, it's like Shakespeare a lot, you know, in Henry V, where he says, Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. You know, this idea that on a stage, you can never sh show a whole war, you know, but, but if you know a little about it, and if I mention the right name, you know, you'll put it together in your mind, and that's even better, right? So if, if I sort of hint at the crater, and you know all about I mean, if I hinted at Abu Ghraib, I wouldn't have to show you the electrodes. You know, I could just put it, you know, I could call my picture near Abu Ghraib. It would be a bunch of sand or something. And I would know that you're, you would go, oh my God, I'm great, you know. I know all about that. So that's what's going on here. And it's also what's going on in near Andersonville. You know, that is, oh my God, Andersonville. You, know, you don't see it, you don't, but it's in the title. So she's looking off somewhere in the distance. She's looking towards Andersonville. They're marching towards Andersonville. The audience in the 1860s knew all about Andersonville. I mean, it's, it's an obsession starting in 64 when this is set and, and going on into 65 when the, when the trial of, the, of Wirtz takes place and then on into 66. I mean, this Andersonville was, a, was bigger than, for them than Abu Ghraib was for us, you know, in terms of just a debatable moment, a horrific story. Now, I said I wanted to get to her and get your views on this, but I, so I just want to end this segment with this thought, which I don't think I expressed well enough in the book. I'm trying to get better at it. But because I'm really becoming more and more convinced that this was the centerpiece of the centennial. These two, these two pictures went on display, went on sale in New York, in different galleries within a week of each other in April of 1866. This one immediately attracts this white post-war public. 
that's wanting to make sense out of the war and say, oh yeah, that's what it was all about. This guy who was a friend of Homer's was actually running for office in New York. Uh, it makes him look pretty good, but it makes the rebels look pretty good too. It's, this was a, a version of the war that they could handle. It goes to the Metropolitan. This was a version of the war they couldn't handle. And it goes to Sarah Louise Kellogg, whose grave is about 10 minutes from here, stays in her house, ends up here in 1966, uh, and, and is now going, Linda's listening to this through next door because she's proud of this, and I am too. This picture is going to be in the big exhibition at the Smithsonian that opens in November for the sesquicentennial. You know, the Smithsonian plus the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and you don't get the Metropolitan Museum of Art to cooperate with that, you know, but they know a good thing when they see it. So, so okay, they're gonna do a big Civil War exhibit. It'll get, give them a chance to strut this picture, but it'll give Newark a chance to loan this picture and give America a chance to meet this woman for the first time. You know, you're, you're six months ahead of time. You, you will know her well by that point. And I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not saying people are gonna walk in and say, oh my God, that's the Civil War I need to know about. I don't think it is, but I do think that we now, as a culture, are in a position to understand what Winslow Homer was trying to say to us in 1866. He got it then. It got you know, this picture becomes an emblem. This picture is lost for 100 years, just the way black participation in the war and the real history of slavery is lost for 100 years. Then for 50 years, we claw our way back, you know, and here we are in 2012, just beginning to like, oh my God, look at that, you know. This is what we need to know about. And somehow this guy knew it right from the start. So we'll talk. All right, good.